Holding Space for Yourself in a Time of Social Isolation and Liminal Space by Heather Platt. The world is settling into an eerie quiet in this new age of coronavirus. It's hard to believe that a thing so small, a virus that is invisible to the human eye, could cause the most significant global disruption any of us has ever seen in our lifetimes. We have no roadmaps for the future because none of us has ever been here before. Our internal GPSs are on endless loops of recalculating. They've run out of maps and nobody has any way of programming them to anticipate the road that's ahead of us. The waves of emotion have been flowing through me and around me, sometimes threatening to drown me and sometimes settling into something more manageable that I can float on. Last week, I found myself in parenting overwhelm, with one daughter having trachea surgery, another daughter losing a friend to suicide, and a third daughter dealing with the loss of an art show she's worked all year to prepare for. This would be a lot to deal with at the best of times, but in the midst of this new and unfamiliar anxiety and uncertainty of what the future will look like, it felt like too much. It all came to a head when a police officer pulled me over for making an illegal left turn, which I'd done because I was distracted and overtired, and gave me a traffic ticket while ignoring social distancing. The tears, rage, fear, and frustration spilled over as I drove away, and I didn't bother trying to stop them. Though I regret the traffic ticket that got me to break down, I don't regret that moment of release when I let myself scream and cry in the car and text my sister for moral support. Like the release valve on a pressure cooker, it helped me settle into a greater sense of calm and acceptance afterwards. This week, I've been having flashbacks to another time in my life when I had to live through a form of social isolation, a difficult time that became one of the most meaningful and transformational events of my life. Five months into my third pregnancy, I had to shut down my very busy life and confine myself to a hospital room. To try to deal with an incompetent cervix, i.e. it was suddenly four centimeters open, Doctors attempted a cerclage, i.e. stitching it closed, but they'd failed and pierced the membrane instead. My unborn child was suddenly exposed and at risk of infection before he was strong enough to fight off that infection. My body, designed to protect a gestating child, was no longer able to do its job. Medical professionals started pumping my body full of antibiotics and steroids to speed the baby's development and put me on strict bed rest. I was told I wouldn't be able to leave the hospital until my baby was born. He wasn't due for another four months, so it felt like an impossibly long time to be confined to an unfamiliar room in an unfamiliar place. In those early days, panic set in as I watched the whole world suddenly slip out of my control and away from my grasp. In some moments, I had full-blown panic attacks, especially the first night when I listened to the screams of another mom down the hall as she realized the baby she'd just given birth to was dead. In other moments, I went into overdrive trying to grab a hold of anything that was still within my grasp to control. I had a full and busy life with a lot of people depending on me, two small children at home and a team of staff at work that needed my leadership during their busiest time of the year. I suddenly felt the urgent need to do everything I could to help them survive my absence. In some of those moments, anger rose alongside the panic, reminding me that I wouldn't be in this place if it hadn't been for two different doctor's errors. 
The first error had come a week before when I'd gone to a different hospital because of discomfort and a sense that my hips were shifting and my body was opening before it was meant to. I'd already had two births, so had some sense of what it should feel like at that stage. At that time, my GP had made this choice not to do an internal exam, which might have revealed the incompetent cervix at an earlier stage when it would have been easier to address. The second error was when the specialist in charge of my care allowed an intern to do the surgery, and the inexperienced intern slipped and pierced my membrane with her sharp needle. A few days into my hospital stay, the familiar sense of panic threatened to overwhelm me in the middle of the night. In the liminal space between sleep and wake, I found myself wrestling with a mysterious presence that I was sure was in the room with me. I later said that I felt it was similar to Jacob wrestling with the angel in the biblical story. After much tossing and turning and wrestling with a flood of emotions that passed through me, a question landed on my heart as though the presence had spoken it out loud. Do you choose to stay in this state of fear, anger, and resentment, or do you choose peace and forgiveness? I took a deep breath and considered the question. I felt justified in all of the big, dark emotions flowing through me, and I felt attached to them because they gave me some sense of power and self-righteousness. But I also knew that those dark emotions would not serve my unborn child. They would cause unhealthiness in my body, which would be passed on through the umbilical cord to my child. I choose peace, I whispered. I choose to forgive the doctors for their errors. The moment I made the choice, the anger drained out of my body and the wrestling stopped. I fell asleep soon afterward in the morning. I woke up to a new state of serenity and acceptance. It wasn't perfect. There were still moments when the fear came back and fed the anger, but that choice changed my whole hospital experience. Nineteen years later, I can now say that it changed my whole life. The seeds for everything I now do, this work of teaching and writing about holding space, were planted in that one moment, that one choice. For the next few weeks, my hospital room became an unusual kind of retreat center. I settled into a time of contemplation and inner reflection. I entertained long and meaningful conversations with friends, family, and the staff at the hospital. I hung artwork for my children on the wall and welcomed plants and flowers from friends. I listened to music on the Fisher-Price tape player a friend lent me. It was in that hospital room that I first became a life coach. There was a new quality to my listening, and again and again I heard from people that sitting with them for a few minutes of their day helps them work through things in their lives where they felt stuck. It wasn't unusual for nurses, nurses' aides, other patients, and even doctors to poke their head into my room and say, I feel drawn to the peacefulness of your space, and then they'd stay a while or come back during their break. Many of them would remark that they felt different when they left, like something had shifted. Even the young intern who'd pierced my membrane came weeping to my room, and I offered forgiveness and told her I hoped that she would go on to become a very good and attentive doctor. Though I didn't have the language for it yet, I was learning to hold space. In letting go of the illusion of control and accepting what was, instead of trying to cling to what could have been, I'd found a new practice that would change my life and eventually become my primary purpose in life.
Three weeks into my hospital stay, after I'd fallen asleep with lullabies playing in my ear, I woke up to hear that they wanted me to go down earlier than usual for my morning ultrasound. They checked in on the baby twice a day to make sure that he was peeing regularly. A functioning bladder meant that he hadn't developed infection. I walked downstairs feeling hopeful and content because just the day before I'd reached the stage where my baby was considered viable outside the womb. The ultrasound technician had barely begun when she went completely silent. We were friends by then, so it was unusual for the chatter to stop. I have to get the doctor, she said, and slipped out of the room. I lay there and began to panic again. When the doctor returned and moved the wand over my belly while looking at the screen, I knew, even before he told me, that my baby had died. Sometime during the night, bacteria had passed through my open cervix and ended his short life. Later that day, I gave birth to my stillborn son, Matthew. When I found out after the ultrasound that I'd still need to go through the labor and delivery process, I was overwhelmed by the unfairness of it. But a kind social worker told me that many mums of stillborn children had reflected later that the labor process was meaningful for them and that it allowed them to feel more like they'd given birth to a real child. She was right. It was excruciating, but it was meaningful. My son, just like my daughter's, was nurtured within me and born through me, and his life had meaning and purpose. He wasn't just a fetus. The grief in the next few weeks was painful, and there were nights when I lay in my bed weeping in anguish, especially when my milk came in and I had no child to nurse. But it's also true that the sense of peace that I found in the hospital stayed with me and helped me get through the times of darkness. Nothing was the same after that. Something was awakened in me in that hospital room, and though it took 10 more years for me to find myself to this work, I had a new sense of purpose and calling that wouldn't leave me alone. Now, nearly 20 years later, I feel deep gratitude for my time in liminal space and social isolation. I was irrevocably changed by it, and it led me to this remarkable work that fills my life with purpose and joy. It is likely that, with coronavirus disrupting your world, you are finding yourself in some of the upheaval, panic, and loss of control that I experienced at the beginning of my hospital stay. If you are, let me offer a few suggestions based on my experience. Number one, remember that no emotional state is ever permanent. The feelings may feel enormous and scary right now, but they will pass. They always pass. Let them pass through you and don't don't judge yourself for feeling big feelings. Feel them, label them, and let them pass. Number two, take a deep breath and let go of whatever you can't control. Our suffering is often rooted in the fact that we desperately want to feel some control over our lives, but that control is an illusion, especially in a time of such disruption. Clench your hand into a fist and release it. Notice how it feels to let go and invite that sensation into your whole body. Do this again and again as often as you need to. Number three, notice what overstimulates you and limit your exposure to it. When I was in the hospital, I tried to watch TV one night but found that it overstimulated my anxious brain, so I stopped and didn't watch TV for the rest of the time I was in the hospital. I'm now noticing the same happening with social media occasionally, so I walk away and turn my attention to something more calming. Number four, focus on the people in front of you. 
When you let the whole world into your consciousness, it can feel scary and overwhelming, especially right now. But when you focus on those you love in your small circles, it feels much more grounding and comforting. This is a good time to narrow your focus. Hold space for those who matter most and trust that the others will find their people. Number five, be still enough to allow your undiscovered gifts to come to the forefront. Sometimes in times of great upheaval, when we quiet ourselves and tune into the depths within us, we find resources that we didn't know we had. Just as I discovered skills in coaching and navigating liminal space, you may discover you have a gift for leadership or baking or problem solving or virtual hosting or serving your neighborhood or whatever. Number six, tend the space you're in. Though I've never been the type of person who loves to clean or care for plants, both of those things felt meaningful to me in my small space. Tending the plants I'd gotten from friends gave me a surprising amount of pleasure and helped me feel grounded and peaceful. Right now, with many of us confined to our homes, the small spaces we're in will need special tending so that we feel supported and held. Number seven, create a space for cocooning. As I said in last week's video about liminal space, this time we're in can be compared to the transformation of caterpillar to butterfly. Before we get to the new post-coronavirus world, we have to go through a phase of deconstruction and emptiness. In my hospital room, I had a large, comfortable chair in the corner that I filled with pillows. That was where I curled up when I needed extra comfort and stillness. Now, during coronavirus, I have a similar spot near my window where I can curl up and feel the sun warm my body. Number eight, allow yourself time and space for processing and meaning-making. In the early days of disruption, your brain will likely be stuck in anxiety overdrive and you won't be able to do much higher functioning processing until you've learned how to calm it. But once you're ready, it can be very helpful to spend time processing your thoughts through journal writing, art making, dance, therapy, etc. The more you're able to process it and make meaning out of it, the less it will get stuck in your body as trauma that you'll have to deal with later. Number nine, connect with the people who matter most and let them support you. This is a time when we need each other more than ever. Even if we can't be in physical contact with each other, we can still support each other and offer love and kindness in all of the ways that we can. It takes a special kind of vulnerability to get through liminal space together, but the deepened relationships that I enjoyed in the hospital tell me that it's worth it. Number 10, notice what lands on your windowsill. When I was in the hospital, butterflies became special to me after my friend Stephanie gave me an article about a woman who saw butterflies as a representation of her deceased dad. After I read the article, butterflies started showing up in unusual places, including the windowsill of my fifth-floor hospital room. In the years since, they have continued to remind me of my son Matthew, and I receive each one as a special gift from the spirit-slash-natural world." In the time of coronavirus, I wonder what special creatures will show up for each of us. None of us knows the outcome of this time of disruption in the world. It's quite possible that many of us will suffer losses and that we'll have to walk through considerable grief and ongoing disruption. I wish I could promise you otherwise, but I simply can't, not after grieving the loss of my son. 
I don't even know if it's hope that I want to leave you with at the end of this article. Perhaps it's something other than hope that we need right now. Perhaps it's more like courage and strength and resilience and new skills in navigating hard journeys. Perhaps it's faith that we can survive this and that we have the capacity to weather the storms that this brings to our lives. Whatever the future looks like, there is one thing that I feel certain of, and that it is this. We are connected to each other, and we are meant to be so. And in this moment, I feel deep gratitude that I am connected to you. Your companion in this liminal space, Heather Plett. <laughs>